Hello, Rachel here with a brief, I guess a public service announcement and errata to explain something about the episode that you are about to hear. And if you listen to all of these episodes where we discuss the play scene by scene, you're going to hear this message multiple times. And I apologize for that to. This important information is that there is a method that my co-hosts and I discuss called Original Practice Shakespeare that we have since learned was not original practice to Shakespeare at all. There is zero evidence to suggest that Shakespeare's actors did not rehearse their plays. There is zero evidence to suggest that they always faced the audience at all times. In fact, we know that to be patently false. So I go into this in more depth in the episode of the podcast under that title about what is original practice and Shakespeare and early modern rehearsal and play production methods. Save thee, friend, and thy music. Dost thou live by thy tabor? No, sir, I live by the church. Art thou a churchman? No such matter, sir. I do live by the church, for I do live in my house, and my house does stand by the church. So thou mayest say, the king lies by a beggar, if a beggar dwell near him, or the church stands by thy tabor, if thy tabor stands by the church? Uh, you have said, sir, to see this age, a sentence is but a chevril glove to a good wit. How quickly the wrong side may be turned outward? Nay, that's certain. They that dally nicely with words may quickly make them wanton. I would, therefore, my sister had no name, sir. Why, man? Why, sir, her name's a word, and to dally with that word might make my sister wanton. But indeed, words are very rascals, since bonds disgrace them. Thy reason, man? Troth, sir, I can yield you none without words. And words are grown so false, I am loath to prove reason with them. I warrant thou art a merry fellow, and carest for nothing. Not so, sir. I do care for something, but in my conscience, sir, I do not care for you. If that be to care for nothing, sir, I, I would it would make you invisible. Art not thou the Lady Olivia's fool? No, indeed, sir. The Lady Olivia has no follies. She will keep no fool, sir, till she be married, and... Fools are like husbands, as pilchards are to herrings. The husbands, the bigger. I am indeed not her fool, but her corrupter of words. I saw thee late at the Count Orsino's. Foolery, sir, does walk about the orb like the sun. It shines everywhere. I would be sorry, sir, but the fool should be as oft with your master as with my mistress. I think I saw your wisdom there. Nay, and thou pass upon me. I'll no more with thee. Hold, there's expenses for thee. Now, Joe, in his next commodity of hair, send thee a beard. By my troth, I'll tell thee. I am almost sick for one, though I would not have a girl on my chin. Is thy lady within? Would not a pair of these have bred, sir? Yes, being kept together and put to use. I would play Lord Pandarus of Phrygia, sir, to bring a Cressida to this Troilus. I understand you, sir. Tis well begged. The matter, I hope, is not great, sir. Begging but a beggar. Cressida was a beggar. My lady is within, sir. 
I will construe to them whence you come. Who you are and what you would are out of my welkin. I might say element, but the word is overworn. This fellow is wise enough to play the fool, and to do that well craves a kind of wit. He must observe their mood on whom he jests, the quality of persons and the time, and, like the haggard, check at every feather that comes before his eye. This is a practice as full of labor as a wise man's art, for folly that he wisely shows is fit, but wise men, folly fallen, quite taint their wit. Save you, gentlemen. And you, sir? Ah, Dieu vous garde, monsieur. Et vous aussi, votre serviteur. <laughs> I hope so, you are. And I am yours. Will you encounter the house? My niece is desirous. Uh, you should enter if your trade needs her. I am bound to your niece, sir. I mean, she is the list of my voyage. Taste your legs, sir. Put them to motion. My legs do better understand me, sir, than I understand what you mean by bidding me taste my legs. I mean to go, sir, to enter. I will answer you with gate and entrance, but we are prevented. Most excellent and accomplished lady, the heavens rain odors on you. That youth's a rare courtier. Rain odors. Well... My matter hath no voice to your own most pregnant and vouchsafed ear. Odors pregnant and vouchsafed? I'll get them all three ready. Let the garden door be shut, and leave me to my hearing. Give me your hand, sir. My duty, madam, and most humble service. What is your name? Cesario is your servant's name, fair princess. My servant, sir. Twas never merry world, since lowly feigning was called compliment. Your servant to the Count Orsino, youth. And he is yours, and his must needs be yours. Your servant's servant is your servant, madam. For him, I think not on him. For his thoughts, would they were blanks rather than filled with me. Madam, I come to wet your gentle thoughts on his behalf. Oh, by your leave, I pray you. I bade you never speak again of him. But would you undertake another suit? I had rather hear you to solicit that than music from the spheres. Dear lady, give me leave, beseech you. I did send, after the last enchantment you did hear, a ring in chase of you. So did I abuse myself, my servant, and I fear me you. Under your hard construction must I sit, to force that on you in a shameful cunning, which you knew none of yours. What might you think? Have you not set mine honor at the stake, and baited it with all the unmuzzled thoughts that tyrannous heart can think? To one of your receiving, enough is shown. A cypress, not a bosom, hideth my heart. So let me hear you speak. I pity you. That's a degree to love. No, not agrees, for tis a vulgar proof that very oft we pity enemies. Why then, methinks, tis time to smile again. O world, how apt the poor are to be proud. If one should be a prey, how much the better to fall before the lion than the wolf. The clock upbraids me with the waste of time. Be not afraid, good youth, I will not have you. And yet, when wit and youth is come to harvest, your were is alike to reap a proper man. There lies your way, due west. Then westward ho, grace and good disposition, attend your ladyship. You'll nothing, madam, to my lord by me? Stay, I prithee, tell me what thou thinkest of me. That you do think you are not what you are. If I think so, I think the same of you. Then think you right, I am not what I am. 
I would you were as I would have you be. Would it be better, madam, than I am? I wish it might, for now I am your fool. Oh, what a deal of scorn looks beautiful in the contempt and anger of his lip. A murderous guilt shows not itself more soon than love that would seem hid. Love's night is noon. Cesario, by the roses of the spring, by maidhood, honor, truth, and everything, I love thee so, that maugre all thy pride, nor wit nor reason can my passion hide. Do not extort thy reasons from this clause, for that I woo, thou therefore hast no cause. But rather reason thus with reason fetter. Love sought is good, but given unsought better. By innocence I swear, and by my youth, I have one heart, one bosom, and one truth, and that no woman has, nor never none, shall mistress be of it, save I alone. And so adieu, good madam, nevermore, will I my master's tears to you deplore. Yet uh, come again, for thou perhaps mayst move that heart, which now abhors to like his love. Okay, and welcome everyone to our discussion of Act 3, Scene 1, and Twelfth Night, or what you will. This is a pretty action-packed scene here. It starts out with a little, uh, kind of almost a battle of wits between Viola and Festi, and it becomes pretty clear that Festi has uh, mixed feelings maybe not even really particularly mixed feelings towards Viola, and we can talk about the reasons for that. And then uh, Viola runs into Aggie Cheek and Sir Toby, and again, there's a sort of little contest of wills. It, it feels almost like Viola has to go through one gate after another to mm. get to Olivia here. But, of course, she does get to Olivia because Olivia wants to see Viola Cesario. And uh, then Olivia does more shameless falling over herself uh, to declare her strong and embarrassing, perhaps, feelings towards Cesario Viola. Feelings that would have been considered very inappropriate at the time. And uh, for a number of reasons, which we will also get into. Okay, hmm. but let's start out with uh, Viola and Festi, who I have made no secret is, you know, one of my favorite characters in the world. <laughs> of all times. <laughs> it's one of these, this scene is one of those. Okay, so for me, I don't love this scene. This is, it, it's got independently some amazing moments and, and some of the great lines but um and and viola goes through some interesting changes in it but the scene between viola and the fool here in the beginning for me is just this break in the festivities it's this plot break you know and i know oh my I'm, gosh john what, what am i in trouble no. I know, I know. No. I know, you're all over him. You're giving I know. me an opportunity to, to explain at length, which of course is my very favorite thing. Good, to good. Well, that's what I'm here for. I'm a good interviewer. I'm... But I, I hear you. I hear you that if, if you're not um, necessarily aware of all the subtext and the double meanings and uh, 
you know, kind of the more historical and your favorite dick jokes and dick <laughs> jokes, then this isn't going to be something that interests you. But, you know, first of all, we have to remember that Viola and Festi are rivals for the same coin. So before Viola showed up, Festi was making good money going in between Orsino's and Olivia's court. And now all of a sudden, uh, Festi isn't needed as much in Arsino's court. Once in a while, you know, oh, where is that strange and antique song? And they go and round Festi up. But for the most part, Viola has filled that job. And, you know, we also kind of feel like that Festi has some real loyalty towards Olivia. You know, some productions even go so far as to kind of add a little romantic uh, frisson between them, or however you say that appropriately in French, Bridget. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, you know, Festi, um, and I'm going to jump ahead to the very end. Because he says, let's see, where is it? Blah, 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 blah. Save thee, friend, and thy music. Dost thou live by thy tabor? And so she's asking, Are, do you busk for a living? Is this what you do? Do you stand on street corners and play your drum, your tabor, and just hope people throw money by you? But Festi decides to be a smart ass. Straight up cat skills, uh, you know, resort. Like, <laughs> but I don't know. I live by the church. I live by the church. I don't just. <laughs> da, da, da. Yeah, man, totally, dude. That's great, and that's always a that's a dead on laugh every time you can't screw that up. It's it's an indestructible gag every time. Everybody gets it, <laughs> and then you know Viola, who is still you know she's a fairly sincere person uh, because she's telling so many lies and she's clearly not practiced at it. But so a bit rot. She says, art thou a churchman? Because if you say, no, sir, I live by the church, that implies that you might be a priest or something like that. But it also says that you live by the church's rules. And so in that research that I was reading about the religion in Twelfth Night that holds Festi up as being somebody who is godly versus Malvolio as somebody who is worshiping Jove and you know, these other kind of suspect deities at the time, uh, Festi, in spite of his being such a smart ass, is considered to be more godly. And he he's bringing that home to Viola by saying, look, I don't know what you're up to, but I am following God's plan for me by fulfilling my role. I don't know who you are. I don't know what role you're filling. Uh, I have a feeling there's something funky going on because I'm not an idiot, but I I don't know necessarily exactly what it is. But Festi jumps right back. No such matter, sir. I do live by the church, for I do live at my house, and my house doth stand by the church. Uh, good night, Gracie. There we go. The <laughs> Bam. 
<laughs> Good. And that's my, my thing with this scene is like, and I kind of get like the whole spiritual and um, uh, pointed uh, quality to his remarks towards her. And, you know, one of the big questions is how much does Festy know? I know personally, I, my first couple of times with this play, I was really into, oh, does this mean that he's in on this and this and this and this? And I, I tend to find out in terms of playing it for me, it works better if they know what we know they know from the page and you can kind of leave these other things in the ether. But the, the thing here with me with this is that we're getting into, this always feels to me like, uh, you know, like, all right, we're going to let the actors have a few minutes. We're going to bring the elephants out. You know, we're going to come in and, uh, you know, do the, so this is, it's like they're inserting, yeah, they're inserting a clown thing. Exactly. Right in the middle of, you know, we just got all this stuff going with Toby and Andrew and all Mm -hmm. of the, you know, we're in the middle of all these things. And it's like, let's go out and do a little shtick on the street corner here for a sec. And then continue on, you know, with, with the uh, real thing. And there is some pointed stuff. And again, some of the very, you know, the very best lines and, you know, foolery, does walk about the orb like the sun that shines everywhere you know and it's just lovely and all that but i do feel like we're we get we get an inserted clown scene it's almost like an in one scene like if if shakespeare did big sets then this would be what was happening while they were frantically changing the set (laughs) (laughs) well i i really could not disagree more i feel like this is really important in terms of setting up both Viola's character and Festi's character and their relationship to each other, it points out that, you know, when we're looking at the theme in terms of Twelfth Night and subversion and, um, you know, switching roles around and things like that, you know, we're, we had this, what we, as, assume was a somewhat sheltered young woman who had had her you know her father and her brother to look after her ends up on a beach and you know the very picture of propriety you know i don't think most people on seeing viola in that first scene of hers on the beach and think oh well you know there's a tart (laughs) (laughs) there's a troublemaker you know there there's somebody who's gonna go against convention and everything else and you know even though she's taking on the role of a eunuch she's doing so for very sort of traditional reasons to protect her honor if she was really sort of a a brazen hussy then she would not change her clothes. You know, she would go and proposition Orsino right off. You know, she's like, yeah, forget about that other lady. Look, I'm here. You're here. (laughs) (laughs) But instead she looks for these kind of very traditional ways to, to hide who she is so that she doesn't make any social mistakes. And, you know, clearly the whole rest of the play is about how, what a terrible idea that is, uh, <laughs> except that it all ends up well for her in the end, even though she, you know, almost gets killed by her beloved. But I'm jumping ahead and and so on. So uh, I I feel like it's a really important sort of a pivot point where we see that this character who is so concerned about following the mores of society 
which, you know, it's a manners play. It's basically what it's about. And then she's interacting with somebody whose job it is to disrupt those mores, to question those mores, who is actually like reinforcing them. And we see how far she has gone into this other side of inappropriateness. And for that matter, I, you know, for that reason, I feel like it's, it's an important point. Now, mm. you know, <laughs> let's face it. An awful lot of people who go to see Twelfth Night and enjoy the show, all of that will go right over their heads. They won't know that. They won't care. You know, and if you need to keep a show under a certain amount, you're outside, there's planes, there's mosquitoes, whatever. Um, I don't think that the plot necessarily loses anything by cutting this. But if you're an actor, if you're a director, if you're a dramaturg, if you're a lit major, uh, if you're a historian, then this scene is is pretty vital. And as you pointed out, has some fantastic lines. Um, I I just love these. Um, Viola jumps in. The king lies by a beggar if a beggar dwell near him, or the church stands by thy tabor if the tabor stands by the church. And so uh, Viola is making an argument here. This is, uh, it's part of a rhetorical convention. They have entered into a, a matching of wits of the kind that students would have engaged in all the time in learning different kinds of rhetoric, different kinds of making an argument, different kinds of public speaking. And so they're following a kind of a particular pattern of exchange in the same way that we had a dueling code. This is sort of part of a debating code. Uh, oddly enough, this debating code is way more complicated than the dueling code it's hmm. got like 18 different types of arguments and so they may be switching back and forth from these and honestly i am not enough of an expert to break that down but i i know it when i see it and so she's coming up with this argument saying that well you know if you're gonna say that you that you live by the church, then you can say that a king lives by a beggar, meaning that a king is poor as well, as poor as a beggar. And Festi says, you have said, sir, agrees with her. To see this age, a sentence is but a chevral glove to a good wit, how quickly the wrong side may be turned outward. And yes, there is a dick joke in there. Um, but, uh, Chevrolet is a very soft leather. It was very supple. And so it was hard to take it off a Chevrolet glove without turning it inside out. And then you have to go through kind of the annoying work of poking all the fingers back the right way before you put it on. But it also speaks to Shakespeare's father's career as a glover. So anytime you see a little glove mention in there, it reinforces this understanding that Shakespeare is a real person. He came from a family. His family made gloves, which was a really high paying uh, career at the time. Everybody needed them. They were hard to make. They're a pain in the ass to make. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> I've made them. <laughs> I've made them for puppets, which is even harder. Oh my god. <laughs> it's hard enough for me to draw hands as an artist who's been drawing all my life. I can't even imagine making gloves. They just <sighs> hands do not are not actually the way we think of them in our mind. Mm-mm. Um but that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> okay. So uh, and Viola says, Nay, that's certain. They that dally nicely with words may quickly make them wanton. And then Festy says, I would therefore my sister had had no name, sir. Well, why, man? This is a classic Shakespearean clown response mm-hmm. here. The classic sort of divvy. Why, sir, her name is a word. And a dally with that word might make my sister wanton. <laughs> But indeed, words are very rascals since bonds disgrace them. And then uh, Viola says, thy reason, man. And so that's a point in a rhetorical argument where they're saying, I don't get where you're going. You're going to have to explain this if you want to win this argument. I'm, I'm not seeing where you're headed there. And then Festi says, troth, sir, I can yield you none without words. And words are grown so false, I am loath to prove reason with them. And if that isn't an indictment of Twitter, I don't know <laughs> what the hell is because, um, you know, linguistics have become such a challenge for us in this day and age where we use words so often online. And you know, I've seen whole forums just completely destroyed by arguments over which words should be used in a particular context. Well, and the power of the, you know, even in, in, we have a currently, you know, uh, politically charged climate in terms of uh, words socially and civically and, and that kind of thing. But the um, just the basic construct of the word and the basic, the original, you know, there is a, a tie that goes way back uh, beyond Shakespeare's time between the, the the word, the value of a person and the thing they say based on the thing they say. And then it's communicate, you know, the word being the, the bond, the soul, mm. the, that thing, you know, the, and, you know, all the way biblical, it begins with the word. He spoke a word and that started the universe, you know, I mean, it's so that that the word itself is the uh, the creator of reality and our uh, commitment or not to its, uh, uh, you know, purity uh, is, is, is a, a comment on our own souls, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and this smacks of that as they get into the, the uh, word thing, although he does that again, he does that thing that that touchstone, you know, the third declension in, uh, you know, of the of the same uh, idea to that to that to that to the point where you know, where you're at, Violet's very next line, she cuts the, the wind out, you know, she's our representative here in the audience. I warrant thou art a merry fellow and cares for nothing. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, it's like, it's like this, okay, but then if I take the word and I do this, and then it just goes on, and, you know, and she's like, look, are you going to, you know, <laughs> I mean, and I know. She's also, she's also at that point admitting that she's lost the argument. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good point. I, I thought you were going to go for the, the, uh, the nothing joke. <laughs> well, we can get to that. 
But the power of the word, and 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 it, it also smacks in here of of um, uh, his because there's in this place so few characters that aren't actively deceiving everyone at all times, right? Everyone is totally putting on airs the entire time, from Malvolio to Viola herself uh, to the facade from Olivia to everything that Sir Toby and Sir Andrew are doing and Sebastian, right? Everyone is just constantly deceiving, 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 you know? And the fool is, is this kind of totem for truth. The you know? fool and Antonio always tell the truth. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes not the truth the person was asking for or the layer of truth they're looking for. And so they don't mm-hmm. get it, but yeah, the fool always tells the truth. Mm-hmm. So, um, and uh, we can get into no thing because since a thing is a penis and no thing is a vagina. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but here's that line where that I was trying to find earlier. Um, let's see. How about uh, Bridget? You, you read that. Not so, sir. Not so, sir. I do care for something. But in my conscience, sir, I do not care for you. If that be to care for nothing, sir, I would. It would make you invisible. (laughs) All right. Now, here we get into some question of does Festy know or does Festy suspect? Or is this just a commentary on Viola Cesario being a eunuch? if I do not care for you, if that be to care for no thing, sir, I would, it would make you invisible. So there's all kinds of things that he's bringing up, but he's basically saying, you don't have a dick, whoever you are, you cannot give Olivia an air. I wish you would just go away because, you know, you're throwing in my whole household topsy-turvy and this isn't what we need we need an heir and so you know maybe in just like the tiny little world of Illyria that Shakespeare has created here the need for an heir doesn't seem as obvious to us in you know the 21st century as it would have to Shakespeare's audience who at that point had an aging queen that obviously wasn't going to produce an heir and this was a, a thing of constant anxiety for people wanting not just a peaceful transition of power, but hopefully a transition of power to another Protestant monarch so that they don't have to go through the same horrible religious purging that they had to go through in between, you know, Henry and then Edward and then Mary and then Elizabeth, where the, re- the state religion flips back and forth so many times. If Elizabeth had produced a Protestant heir, then the Protestant population would have been much more relaxed. But as it was, you know, the closest heir was a Catholic, and they didn't know what that was going to mean to them. And so that seems like a reasonable concern to me to Festy to have. This is the, that moment where, you know, like the, the argument is made that he could, you know, starts to get made that he could know or not, you know, mm-hmm. um, this and then that he gets into the um, the Chorley's and Crested at uh, 
stuff yeah. coming up here in a sec yeah. uh, bring the idea of bringing the couple together and all that too but i do you know i don't know because there's always that argument like maybe he's just talking about the coins right or you know or here like you know maybe uh I, you know, just, I, I don't like you, you know, <laughs> yeah, but I don't think, you know, in, in general, the way that you impressed people in Elizabethan times was with wordplay and word puzzles. Yeah. You know, they were as into that as, you know, people are. Into well, and we know are, in the audience you know. too, so like we know it, Festies are, you know, link in on this stuff in a lot of ways. So I think we, we could smell what he can smell, you know, they, they can smell it. I think that what Festi is saying is that Viola Cesario is a ambiguous, ambiguously, oh, crap. Ambiguous. Ambiguously. <laughs> I think that what Festi is saying here is that Viola Cesario is an ambiguously gendered person. And nobody can argue with that. Certainly not Viola. And so she has stopped at this point. She's basically thrown up, you know, the, the flag of truce and said, look, I, you know, yeah, you got me. I'm an ambiguously gendered person. I'd really rather not go down this path. And Festi is making the point that if somebody is going to capture Olivia's heart, then they should be a man. If if she's going to marry somebody, then they should, according to the mores of the time, that person needs to have a functional penis in a very visceral way. So, you know, she she starts you know trying to kind of get him away from that side of the of the discussion he just keeps digging in more and more then uh, she says art not thou the lady olivia's fool and he's still not letting it up no indeed sir the lady olivia has no folly she will keep no fool sir till she be married well this was <laughs> typical um you know, generally it was the monarch that had a fool, although um, Elizabeth had a fool as a young girl and so on. So this isn't completely true. He's definitely twisting this for a joke. Um, and fools are as like husbands as pilchards are to herrings. The husband's the bigger, but I'm tish. I am indeed not her fool, but her corrupter of words. And oh, I just love that so much. Yeah, it's a great, that's <laughs> That's one of those gift things to perform. And, you know, everybody gets the joke that, uh, you know, that men become fools in love, just as women do. And then he also makes a dick joke in there, assuming that the husband has a bigger penis, which is to be hoped for. But again, he is bringing this point to Viola that the idea of the husband you don't have the dick whatever ideas you have like he doesn't know how sincere viola cesario is about trying to get away from olivia for all he knows he's just playing you know viola cesario is just kind of waiting for the highest bidder um but he is bringing up the point again that a husband needs 
a penis in 17th century England. Uh, and, you know... <laughs> and once again, the need for the penis. And the... <laughs> I feel like I feel like you're gonna be able to cut into our uh, conversations here, and every, every third cut, that's what you're gonna get. Penis, penis, penis. <laughs> We're right in there with Shakespeare, man. Well, that's how he would have intended it. There you go. He'd love that. I just want to make clear to you know anybody listening that uh, gender is a complicated thing. It's has you know only a tangential relationship to genitals in the respect that if the gender in your mind doesn't match your physical gender then that can become an issue and that some people have very confusing uh physical genitalia too where these things are not so cut and dried so to speak so um, you know this is a very 17th century way of thinking that we do in no way condone or endorse okay um, all right, and then, and Viola tries to change the subject again. I saw the late at the Count Orsino's. And then uh, Vesti again, like, just is not letting up. Foolery, sir, does walk about the orb like the sun. It shines everywhere. I would be sorry, sir, but the fool should be as oft with your master as with my mistress, I think I saw your wisdom there. Uh, just another dig, like, you know, pick one. <laughs> Viola Cesario. And, you know, you're not really ideally suited to either of these people as a royal heir. And when you understand the people kind of buzzing around Elizabeth's court, trying to become king, trying to become her favorite and everything else, uh, people going back and forth between different courts in Spain and the Ottoman Empire and Europe and, you know, trying to curry favor with all of them. Pretty typical activity for a courtier to have kind of multiple, perhaps even questionable loyalties. Uh, so then Viola says, you know, desperate to get away from Festy. <laughs> says, here's some money. Nay, <laughs> 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 uh, and thou pass upon me. I'll no more with thee. I'm done. I'm done. Uncle, I give. Well, and it's when he brings up seeing her with Orsino. You know, exactly. seeing her at or you know it's it's that or she's like we're not yeah exactly we're not he's just, he's just been hammering her the whole time yeah. like, you don't have a dick you're fucking around with everybody I, you know I, I don't trust you i wish you would just go away you know who would want to hang out with somebody who had that opinion of you uh, <laughs> and now festy brings up jove which is interesting now jove in his next commodity of hair sends thee a beard um he's basically calling viola uh a pagan, somebody not following God's plan, whatever that is. Or at the very least without a beard. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, he's saying, and again, because having a beard was, you know, symbolic of having a penis. He's saying like, you know, you're, you're going to need a dick. I'm sorry. And poor Viola. 
by my troth, I'll tell thee I am almost sick for one. Well, what? I don't get it. and uh then she makes a joke about how she would not have it grow on her chin uh so you know is she talking about you know orsino's beard is she talking about her own pubic hair um and so on uh and then Festy's like, yeah, you gave me one coin. How about you give me two? Would not a pair of these have bred, sir? Again, bringing up that she cannot provide an heir for anyone. Um, and she says, sure, being kept together and put to use. Another sex joke. Um, and then uh, I would play Lord Pandrus of Phrygia, sir, to bring a Cressida to this Troilus. And we're at 10 o'clock. Hmm. So, and I have not really done uh, the research I should about Pandarus and Cressida. I, I, I played Pandarus and brought a Cressida to a Troilus. Pandarus of, of Phrygia uh, is uh, sort of the Friar John uh, ah. or, or Friar Lawrence, I guess, Friar oh, Lawrence yeah. of uh, Troilus and Cressida. It very much serves that function. You know, it's like the older brings the lovers together in the dead of night kind of thing mm-hmm. um gives uh, advice um kind of screws it up a little uh, that's where pander comes from too yep, right pander yeah pander. Oh, yep. fascinating yep yep oh, thank you and and Trillis, uh notable here because there's a troubling quality to their relationship as opposed to like your star cross you know romeo and juliet type thing or something like that those two a little more there was a more of a a lot of you know uh, chris just kind of gets painted as this um untrue woman uh she might might have been sort of uh a bit of a harlot bit of a harlot or you know uh, taken advantage of at the camps by the by the enemy is mm-hmm. is, is a line there that's kind of not mm-hmm. uh 100 clear but yeah it's not it's not as it, yeah. it, it denotes some trouble in, in paradise, I think. Right. This is. Yeah. right. Yeah. And kind of builds on the theme of, uh, of Viola Cesario adding to the instability of an already difficult situation between Orsino yeah. and Olivia. And the classic of the two coins. You know, I, I would like mm-hmm. to bring these together and add more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Uh, Viola, again, just trying to get rid of the guy. I understand you, sir. Tis well begged. Um, Gives him another coin. And then Festy, the matter, I hope is not great, sir. Begging, but a beggar. Cressida was a beggar. So are you implying that Cressida, you know, that Olivia is like Cressida in this case? Um, and then, it, you know, again, he's saying who you are and what you would are out of my welkin, out of my world, out of my universe. I don't understand. And then he says, I might say element, but the word is overworn. And uh, <laughs> I think that that is the second time that joke is brought up. But, um, you know, talking about humors and everything else. Mm. And then Viola does a little uh, 
kind of tribute to Folly. And how about you give us that, Bridget? This fellow is wise enough to play the fool, and to do that well craves a kind of wit. He must observe their mood on whom he jests, the quality of persons and the time, not, like the haggard, check at every feather that comes before his eye. This is a practice as full of labor as a wise man's art, for folly that he wisely shows is fit, but wise men, folly fallen, quite taint their wit. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's a lovely little tribute to folly and fools and lets us know that, yeah, Festy won that little battle of wits and she actually kind of respects him more for it. She's glad to see the back of him, but she can't say that he's wrong. It also sets up the entrance of the next two. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it gives her some ammunition for when she gets to mm. Olivia. Exactly. Right. Well, and to the to Toby and Andrew blundering in. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of uh, right. wise men folly fallen. Right. The wise the wise <laughs> the wise fool leaves, the fools come in. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so uh, Festy goes off to let Olivia know that uh, Viola Cesario is looking for her. And Viola makes a, a nice little speech here where they talk about um, what it means to be a good fool. Uh, let's see, John, how about you read Viola's line there? Mm. This fellow is wise enough to play the fool, and to do that well craves a kind of wit. He must observe their mood on whom he jests, the quality of persons, and the time, and like the haggard, check at every feather that comes before his eye. I can continue if you want. Okay. This is a practice. Well, <laughs> this is a practice as full of labor as a wise man's art, for folly that he wisely shows is fit, but wise men folly fallen quite taint their wit. Okay, so what do you two make of this little speech? I mean, I you know I've got I've got theories and opinions, but I want to hear yours <laughs> first. What? Why do you think that's in there? I mean, who who is she talking to, first of all? Is she breaking the fourth wall mm -hmm. there? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> She's addressing the and, audience. And, you know, there's a, a quality to it of, um, it does touch on her own predicament and her own uh, mm -hmm. job right now, you know, and, and bouncing from these courts and all that kind of stuff. So there is that echo of her own circumstances and like, oh, taking a note on the kind of, you know, the thing that she's doing as well. They, there's an overarching sort of appreciation of, of like uh, amongst celestial bodies when a, when a sun passes you by or something, you know, like we really get this sense of, of her kind of like basking in, in Festive for a second here, you know, kind of independently, but it does, it does uh, hearken to her own, her own gig. Mm -hmm. It does. And, it, you know, honestly, it, it's enough buttering somebody up that it almost feels to me like Shakespeare 
buttering up Robert. Right. I mean, yeah. There's there's a little extra gravy there, right? You didn't have, have to do all that. There to the mm-hmm. you know the new actor in the troupe that they've gotten to replace Will Kemp. You know, clearly Shakespeare is appreciating this kind of fool. And, you know, certainly there was a lot of controversy at the time. Like we can imagine now, you know, if somebody who's a beloved cast member in a beloved show uh, gets yanked and replaced by somebody else completely different, there's going to be a lot of controversy about it. Some people are going to love the change and some people are just going to like, you know, Go to their grave complaining about it. So I kind of feel like here this is Shakespeare's opportunity to say, look, uh, you know, we wanted a witty fool, not a foolish wit. And so this is the kind of clown you're getting now, and uh, you're going to like it. (laughs) There's a... a, I think it's also... No, you. I think it's also a a reminder to the audience to pay attention to what Festy is saying mm. you know that as mm-hmm. as the the ridiculousness accelerates that if they're looking for the truth he's the person they should be listening to mm-hmm. oh man yeah what were you gonna say john um yeah the uh also the um idea of station and status and um mm-hmm. practice is full of labor is a wise man's art for the folly that he wisely shows is fit. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. that, that you know, conjures up that, you know, relationship with Olivia uh, that Festy has and how he adjusts when he's talking to Olivia and serves an emotional purpose in, in addition to the kind of courtly fool thing that he's doing. But wise men folly fallen quite taint their wit. And uh, the peril of 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 your own folly, you know, and uh, thinking that you're so wise, mm-hmm. and uh, and then just spiraling down into, you know, when you've got all these malapropisms surrounding, you know, her Cesario, him, Viola. There we go. However that works, <laughs> but um, you know, constantly uh, surrounded by people that think they're brilliant and think they're intelligent, um, but without that, without the meat there, that just that idea of status, and. Yeah, and station. That it's really about mm-hmm. the meat, you know, of 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 the art, and that and that being able to read the room, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, these two fools. Walk in. <laughs> yes, and then these two fools walk in. Well, yeah, I, I like all of those takes, and I especially like, you know, the fact that um, that Viola Cesario is reminding the audience that that they should pay attention to the fool because this is Twelfth Night and the fool is basically in charge here. But I also think it's really interesting whenever Shakespeare clearly breaks the fourth wall. Like we as directors can choose when and where we want to break that anytime we want. But here is a point where no question, you know, no at all that this is happening here. And I feel like it, when it does happen, that it's almost signaling like, okay, things are about to change here. That's a great point. Mm. Yeah. Almost like a little reality palate cleanser. Mm-hmm. Like, 
Okay, everybody, this is a story, and things are about to get weird now. But it is a story. Remember that, so please don't get too hung up on that. <laughs> Personal theory. Okay. And so then these two other clowns come in, as you pointed out. Toby and Aggie Cheek and come in and find Viola Cesario. And this is just an automatically hilarious scene. It is. I love that. Like, I like when someone's out there and then boom, you got these two fools that come in. And it's it's sort of got that playground, <laughs> like, you know, a Will Ferrell thing or something like, you know, it's, it's, it's got that, mm. like, uh, giantly comic foppish menace that's completely toothless at this point pretty much you know but like we're going to surround you or we're that's always in this scene like kind of where my head goes in terms of physical placement in this section here well and it's always hilarious to have somebody try to show off by speaking a different language and then they do it badly mm -hmm. that just never ceases to be funny if somebody's pompous about it if somebody's humble then we just feel for them you know they're struggling but uh, here, um, Aggie Cheek says, Do uh, vous garde, Mansoor? So, what, what is he trying to say, Bridget, as our resident? He's actually, at least in, in my um, uh, version of it, he's, he's using, I mean, everything's correct. He's saying, God save you. But it's saying, it's it's the the way to play with it is just to massacre the pronunciation. As I just did. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Every time I try to speak French, yeah. Yeah. it's effortless for me. Okay. <laughs> and then uh, Viola responds, please, Bridget. Et vous aussi, votre serviteur. And what does that mean? And you also, I'm your servant. Ah, okay. I mean, it's and it's it's absolutely correct. It's just mm -hmm. the the um the comedy is in, is simply in your your ague cheek mucking up those four <laughs> very simple words. <laughs> got it. And then Viola it. responding in flawless schoolgirl French. And rolling off yeah. of her tongue. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, clearly... flawless. I'm a noble woman. Mm -hmm. I had a French governess. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, and then Toby, um, you know, will you encounter the house. My niece is desirous you should enter. So clearly Festy has done Festy's job and let Olivia know. Um, Festy is nothing if not reliable <laughs> in Festy's strange way. And Viola says, I am bound to your niece, sir. I mean, she is the list of my voyage. And this is just one of many sort of seafaring metaphors that happen in Twelfth Night, for obvious reasons. It's part of a theme <laughs> they've got going here about the ocean and music and love and how those things are all tied together. Uh, Sir Toby Belch then says, taste your legs, sir, put them to motion. All right. <laughs> yes, that's a peanut. Oh, joke. boy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My legs do better understand me. Pun upon pun upon dick joke upon simple anatomy joke. Um, then I understand what you mean by bidding me taste my legs. And now this is where um, 
I am just racking my brain trying to remember the goddamn thing that I read about this, but maybe I'll just come in another time and talk about it. But, um, but in any event, um, there was at the time, you know, obviously England and, you know, we're just a bunch of Yanks here in the United States. And so uh, we are not a small island nation the way that England is and was. And so our relationship to the ocean and to our Navy and everything else does not have this sort of compelling thing that we identify with as a nation. We do not identify with our Navy. If anything, we identify maybe with uh, NASA Oh, you're so hopeful. That's very sweet of you. Um, (laughs) Well, I'm just saying, but as, you know, as things that we think of as, as exploratory bodies that bring our country glory, I think that, that, that yellow ribbons, boots, Mm -hmm. anyway, that's Mm -hmm. a different podcast. But the, the Navy, on the other hand, is, uh, you know, certainly as important and valuable as any other branch of the military, uh, doesn't have the same glamour that it certainly did in Elizabethan England, where all of her favorites were sea captains, uh, privateers, which is basically just legalized piracy, mm. Adventure. all of that. And so, uh, you know, any time that we're talking about a somebody who was a wooer or an attractive person to somebody in power and they start bringing up all these ocean and seagoing metaphors then we're all going back to elizabeth and her court and her fondness for her seat i watched an um, interview i put up a, a, a link to a, a portion of it but about um alan moore you know alan moore wrote uh, watchmen and and some others um mm-hmm. and uh he talks about this point of, of how um in in early times, early times, uh, if the metaphor of going to sea, um, and it was the thing that all young people were uh, sort of gearing towards, you know, in your in your youth, and then in your twenties, um, it's that active thing that you're doing, and it's been replaced nowadays by celebrity, the idea of celebrity becoming famous mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so, I think there is something to that, you know, it, it, it's that level mm-hmm. of importance, you know. Like for now, uh, everyone, mm-hmm. you know, we all want to be a movie star. We're all we've all got headshots and clips of every little thing we do and likes and dislikes knows and the good side yeah all of that stuff well and, and that's why we do podcasts about Shakespeare, right, right? It's for the glamour and the fame yeah. but it, it's that level so when that's you talk it. about the sea it conjures up much like celebrity mm-hmm. and and art does for us now it was an adventuresome dangerous arts the sea it was a, it was a daring thing like you're saying with with outer space and that kind of thing and so it conjures up the best most you know uh, uh risk-taking and and blood-filled parts of Mm -hmm. life absolutely Mm -hmm. and it's where elizabeth got all her gold was by taking it from the spanish (laughs) (laughs) was these sea captains going and basically raiding for the gold that the spanish had stolen from the new world and then the english stole from the spanish and uh (laughs) (laughs) you know if that gold could talk it's it's probably some of the gold in our teeth, you know, probably came from the Aztecs. It's all 
all been gathered together and remelted down so many times. And in fact, that's why we actually have very few works of art that are made out of gold. Just because, I, and they, they were made all the time and transferred back and forth between royalty and given as gifts and everything else. And you read these incredible accounts of these amazing like clockwork kind of toys made out of gold and precious stones and, you know, lost to the ages because they were melted down. So if you want something to last, don't make it out of gold. That's that's my advice. But anyway, coming back, circling around, coming back. <laughs> um, yes, you are. I think you're absolutely right, John, that, that that glory and if you wanted to make a name for yourself in court, that was definitely the way to do it. And you didn't even have to be good at it. You could actually fail. Yeah, quite neither, a bit neither do we. Make neither do up. we. All you, had, all you had to do was make it back, you know, make it back alive and, uh, you know, not lose money too many times. Right. You just needed did. one good one. Just one, just one good one, good man. One. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So uh, Viola finally gets past all of the all of the barriers to entry of seeing Olivia. Olivia and Mariah come out. And there's a, that, that important kind of seed that's dropped with Andrew in that too, along with the French, you know, mm -hmm. you know, and my kind of puppy dog, uh, sympathies with Andrew. I, I I tend to make him a little bit more of an innocent than he probably is a lot of the time, but when someone speaks French back to him, maybe him getting just caught up and like, oh, we're doing this now. And then, you know, and, <laughs> and then uh, and that kind of building on itself where um, Viola's line, his first line is Olivia and Mariah come out. Viola's most excellent, accomplished lady, the heavens rain odors on you. And sort of continuing for Sir Andrew, that used a rare courtier, mm -hmm. rain odors. Well, and, you know, it kind of began with the French. You know, he, he's mm. he's got his eye there. He's, he wasn't expecting this, you know. Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, he's like, oh man, this, this Cesario <laughs> knows what's up. I'm going to I'm gonna copy and them. Then, and then, you know, the, you know, the, the, words, that picks the words that he picks are hilarious, are hilarious odors, pregnant, pregnant and vouchsafe. <laughs> Whoopsie. <laughs> oh, dear. So he's just a, a never-ending um, poor Andrew fountain and uh, completely illustrates what Viola had been talking about before, uh, where... Wise men folly fall in or yeah. the folly that he yeah. wisely should... Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, yeah, that clearly, you know, you, this guy has all the status, all the money, all the prestige, but he just, you know, gormless is probably the <laughs> kindest thing that I can. That's perfect. The way I can put it, um, it, it all that money won't buy you any gorm. No, um, no, no <laughs> gorm for Andrew. No gorm for Andrew. And. You know, then uh, Olivia gets rid of the riffraff so that, mm -hmm. you know, she can have time alone with her crush. <laughs> and, you know, this goes about as well as we would expect in a, <laughs> in a comedy of uh, crossed hearts and mixed manners and bungled metaphors and... Um, 
But there's also a lot of frustration on Olivia's part. She is telling these men how she feels in no uncertain terms. And every single mm-hmm. one of them is like, no, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, she's, you know, I, I bade you never speak again of him. Oh, look, here you are talking about him again. <laughs> you know, um, you know, and then it's, you know, I've bared my soul to you. I've made a fool of myself to you. And, and you disdain me you know and and you know you know it's for me as somebody who who's played the part this this scene is a heartbreaker because it's like i keep telling you what i want i keep telling you what i need you don't believe me anytime you throw me the slightest bone of kindness um, I'm I'm willing to take that. I'm willing to take whatever you want to give me if you just stop talking about that asshole. And and just totally different <laughs> spheres there. Like, uh, just I mean, she's incapable. You know, Violet's incapable of of, of giving her. Yeah. Which, it's, it's so yeah. tragic. You know. It's yeah. Just... Yeah. And poor Viola's like, lady, I'm just trying to not get killed for being a chick. <laughs> there's a little cesario in my 14 year old self i'm gonna be honest where i there's a few gals i probably was they're like why why did you say all this stuff i was like i thought i was supposed to they're like well well, how come we're not uh, dating or something i'm like i'm gonna go play space invaders is that, is that a little different? It's probably a little different, right? Is that a little? <laughs> but that frustration with yeah. the uh, with uh, just the oblivious uh, nature, and oh, like yeah. you said, Olivia really just burying it all and has no reason to. And she's forsworn herself, and she's. I mean, yeah, yeah. man, that's awesome point. Yeah. It's a, it's such a killer. It's such a killer. And then, of course, you still have to make it funny. <laughs> well, because it is funny. Oh, it is funny. It, it, and it's only funny because it allows us to laugh at our own tragic circumstances, which we've, you know, most of us have experienced at one yeah. time or another. Unrequited feelings yes. for somebody, even if they weren't romantic, even if yes. you just like had a friend that you thought was your best friend and you turned out that you were like maybe fifth or sixth on the list. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, I don't want to get too um, uh, stereotypical about the kinds of relationships, strong relationships that people can have. Uh, and yet, all that said, I think part of what's sort of funny about it for me is I'm certainly feeling for Olivia. I'm feeling very much for Viola Cesario in the situation. But it also kind of points to this larger issue, which is that sometimes when we're being rejected, we're not being rejected for the reasons that we think that we're being rejected. Mm. And that had Olivia known the truth of the situation, she too could have perhaps laughed and cried Mm. at her circumstances. Mm -hmm. If she was genuinely being rejected by the person she thought she was being rejected by then it wouldn't be funny Mm -hmm. yeah we'd just be bullies for laughing at her right so you know i i think in that sense um 
you know, we can find some something to yeah. salvage out of this scene of Olivia's. Oh, oh no, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and but, again, a lot of it, I think, comes down to the physicality. Like you've got these beautiful, heartfelt, heart wrenching words. Yes, that are being spoken while Olivia is chasing Viola, basically. Like, yes. you, you know, you can definitely physicalize it where it's this whole sort of, you know, the boss chasing the secretary around the desk. Yes. I think um, when we staged it, I just had mine sitting on the floor in a heap in her beautiful gown, mm. just kind of... Um, um, almost kind of sort of desperately crawling, you know, as Viola's like pacing mm. back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And so um, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways that we can show that kind of um, physical rejection mm -hmm. of her. Mm -hmm. I, I think, though, it's interesting to have Olivia chasing Viola Cesario around because you know, for me, that brings back like all those, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s comedies where the professional male is chasing the, the hapless female mm -hmm. clerk, secretary, messenger mm -hmm. around the desk. Mm -hmm. And brings up for me the fact that Olivia is being pretty pushy. <laughs> you know, th this is kind of it's. What we would consider inappropriate in that sense, and mm. that she is pressuring somebody who is a subordinate, who is there on orders of somebody else, who really can't say no. Mm. In yeah, I don't want that to be true. Relationship. <laughs> no, but see, you know, she says, you know, um, you know, when she's talking about having given the ring, you know, give me leave, beseech you. I did send after the last enchantment you did hear a ring in chase mm -hmm. of you. So did I abuse myself, my servant, and I fear me you. Under your hard construction must I sit to force that on you in a shameful cunning which you knew none of yours. What might you think? Have not mm -hmm. you set mine honor at the stake and baited it with all the unmuzzled thoughts that tyrannous heart can think? She's saying... This is up to you. Yeah, tell me. I am, she, yeah, I am, yeah. I am laying myself and yeah. my position and my my ability to command my staff at your feet. I am putting all of my power. I just, you it, know, you have the ability to 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 wreck. And me. also, like, like, okay. tell me what you think about everything I did, not about Orsino. Like, I don't, you know, mm -hmm. when you just come in here and talk about Orsino after I did all of that. You know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. I mean, so I, yeah, it's I, maybe a little less like of the getting beat down with it. Like you have to respond in the positive, but more, yeah, more like, uh, Hey, this is, what is your answer here? You know, can you at least answer me mm -hmm. before we get back to the freaking Orsino thing? All right. And, and yet, <laughs> and yet Viola Cesario has given their answer yeah. many Yeah, many I just don't times. like that part. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with you. I'm they with have you. already said no. Mm -hmm. And uh, they haven't just said no to Olivia repeatedly, but they've also told us mm -hmm. why they're saying no mm -hmm. over and over again. And we're well aware, too, that there's other people around who feel like Olivia's pursuit of uh, Cesario is inappropriate. And it's 
a lot of it has to do with status and class. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if Cesario was uh, a male with the equipment to make heirs and was a noble, then it would be a completely different story. But Olivia has pulled Viola back now several times to beg Cesario to marry her and to love her. And each time Cesario has to go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cesario does not have a choice here. Mm -hmm. So kind of like if you, if you switch the genders a little and think about it as like a forties comedy with the poor messenger in a little pencil skirt and (laughs) the, the head of the, the CEO or the board president or whatever down on his knees saying, look, I'm offering you everything. I'm offering you my company. I'm offering you all my money, all, all of my status. If you will just tell me that you, I don't know. I don't get it. And there's the young woman, but that's Getting, never the offer. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if in it's those, that. In those situations, that's not the offer. Not that. The offer is, I'll offer you my protection, but it's not, I'm offering you myself. Well, it's also, I mean, let's, again, I can't stress enough, I'm going to predicate this with the fact that she's just saying, don't say that Orsino shit, just tell me what mm-hmm. you think. And, I mean, mm-hmm. in this scene, the first time that we get that from Viola is uh, right here, I pity you. And that's boom. And the second we get that, that's the degree to love finishes the that's line. That's the degree to love. Yeah. We're um, we're mm-hmm. in the uh, in the land of verse here, uh, and then suddenly, yeah, I pity you. That's a degree to love. No, not agrees or agrees for tis a vulgar proof that very often we pity enemies. Boom, it's done. Mm-hmm. Right? She's immediately mm-hmm. Olivia's now. Well, then, she's me thinks it's time to smile again. She's coming to terms immediately upon you know hearing here at least in this scene. She's mm-hmm. at the first inkling of a negative uh, personal response. She's still demanding the personal response, which Cesario mm-hmm. would not necessarily actually be free to give. But okay, let me let me make sure I'm understanding you correctly. Are you saying that here Olivia is starting to accept the fact that Viola does not love her? I'm just saying because I'm not seeing that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not seeing would, that at all. Why then? Me thinks it's time to smile again. How apt the poor are to be proud. If one should be prey. How much better to fall before the lion than the wolf? A very admirable uh, speech there about Viola. The clock abrades me with the waste of time. Be not afraid, good youth. I will not have you. It talks about how your wife's going to reap uh, a proper man. There lies your way due west. It seems like we're out. And then, no, she can't. She's begging and blah, 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 blah and all that again. Right. But, and then she's yeah, begging but again. She's, so, yeah, but, I mean, she gets and again, it. I'm picturing, I'm picturing the guy, the... The board president, he said, okay, okay, I heard you, I heard you, you don't want me. But wait, wait! Right. But I really mean it. I really want you. Why? I love thee so, that mauger all thy pride, nor wit nor reason, can my passion hide. Olivia is not going to let up, like, ever. And believe me, I understand that feeling. (laughs) really well when you're gripped in that kind of passion when you're madly in love with somebody you know logic reality the other person's feelings don't figure all that much into your own personal state in the moment when they're directly in front of you there's something that sort of overrides all that and she just here is 
poor Olivia's, uh, sorry, poor Viola Cesario, just trying, as you pointed out, Bridget, to not be killed for being a woman. <laughs> and is in a very dangerous situation. Okay, well, that answers here. my question. So I was going to say, I mean, like, not to, like, be, uh, you know, well, why would she wear that if, she, you know, she's asking for it about it or anything. But um, there's a very simple way to get Olivia to be quiet here. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, there's a very simple, boom, yeah. or, you know, whatever. Just a, a quick, uh, Yeah. I mean, I... As I guess with all of Shakespeare's plots, right? It's like if you would have just done the one thing, then we wouldn't have a play, and obviously yeah. we need the play. But well, I, I think yeah. that that makes a certain amount of sense. And yet, when people revealed themselves to be a different gender than other people expected, those other people don't always behave rationally. They often get very, very angry, yeah. and Olivia is clearly not in a rational state of mind right now. And not just because she's in love with Viola Cesario, right? right? We know that she's grieving. We know that she's taken this vow of seven years and all these other things that have people saying, you know, she doesn't seem real emotionally stable right now. She's behaving very oddly for a lady of her stature. And who would know this better than Viola Cesario, who was raised to be a lady of Olivia's stature. So I don't see any reason for her to trust Olivia. But with that knowledge, the, you know, John brings up an interesting point. If she had, if Viola had said to Olivia at their very first meeting, before mm -hmm. she spouted off all of the drivel Orsino made her memorize, mm -hmm. <laughs> if she had said, look, here's my deal. I'm pretending to be this. I'm pretending to be a eunuch. I'm pretending to be a guy because I was still, but so, but she had already fallen in love with Orsino. Right. <laughs> so she wouldn't right. need, so it was, so she was selfishly continuing the charade in order to have contact with the man that she had unreasonably fallen in love with. Because if she came out mm -hmm. as a woman, Olivia probably would have welcomed her into her home and into her seven years of seclusion. Yes, yes. And as long as we're looking at plot holes, there's really no reason why Viola didn't just go to Olivia in the first place, since she had only shut out men, mm -hmm. not women. I mean, it stands to reason. Plot that is never she might... Shakespeare's strong suit. No, never <laughs> strong suit. It really isn't. <laughs> plot holes you could drive a carriage through. So. We, it, it doesn't it doesn't do us much profit to to look too hard at these uh, <laughs> things that they could have should have would have done if it was an actual factual situation. Uh, but we do see a a few things here. One is a really early pleading for the Bechtel test by some characters <laughs> <laughs> that didn't even know that's what they were doing. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the Bechtel test, it's uh, there are several things to ask yourself when you're watching a piece of media as to whether or not there is agency for any of the female characters. Uh, the basic one is, you know, is there a female character with a name? <laughs> That's kind of a biggie. And are there two female characters who talk to each other about something besides <laughs> another man? <laughs> and 
it never happens for Viola and Olivia. And this is what Olivia is pleading for. Mm -hmm. Can we just have a conversation that does not include this patriarchal male? And surely that was also part of the political climate in that in Elizabeth's court for just to stop asking what do the men think all the time. We have a queen. What does the queen think? And yet there's this whole other centuries and centuries of patriarchy going, but her male advisors are what matters because obviously a woman can't rule a country like this. And so we have to focus on her male advisors. And so there was a lot of discussion about her male advisors and which ones were and weren't fit to consult with her. And was their fitness still there in spite of their advanced age? Was that a plus or a minus? Were they her lovers? I'm reading this incredible book called Age and Love, talking about the concept of elderly people being in love in Tudor times. Mm. And back then, it was genuinely thought that men who wanted sex after their 20s, like well into their 30s and 40s, were not mature people and could not be trusted with governance or anything else. This got very complicated as Elizabeth... I just want, I just want it on the record, I did as... not make any jokes right there. I just... <laughs> I'm so I know, sad. they were right there, a bubbling. I'm very proud. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You should be sorry. (laughs) So, how did it end up? Uh, Is it that if you um, dedicate yourself to your household, the furtherance of your family, or like that kind of thing, it's virtuous? Well, the idea was... Because i got to tell you, I'm a cocoon guy from way back. I I love it when the old guys uh, and gals get together. (laughs) That that just smurfs me out, man. I can't even deal with that. The dancing in the kitchen, are you kidding me? I can't... The Titanic, when the two of them were on the bed and the water was coming up next to the thing in Titanic, and it was... I can't deal. I'm I'm, I'm all over the senior love. I mean, not personal. You know what I mean. All right. (laughs) I'm all for people enjoying the fruits of their bodies whenever and wherever they can, given all other circumstances being positive. Um, But all that said, the ancient Greeks believed that a large penis was evidence of a small mind and of a lack of moral fiber. And that is why when you look at these ancient Greek statues, even of, of characters like Zeus or Poseidon, they have a, a rather diminutive ancient Greek situation equipment. Yes, situation. <laughs> and then you see the opposite with the Priapus statues, which are just giant penises with often not even like a, 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 a human body attached to them. And there was this just kind of a belief that you could have one or the other, that you could not have both. And so the idea was that young men, while they were young and healthy and capable of traveling and and casting their seed, that this was their purpose. They were supposed to travel 
go into the ocean, make love, uh, have babies, father more sailors and more farmers and more clerks and, and everything else. That was their job. But as they became a householder and as they progressed, then they were supposed to start thinking about other things. But because there was a female queen, what that meant was that for her male courtiers to stay in power, they had to at least be willing to flirt with nice. her. They had to at least be willing to act as though they were ready to bed this her at a, any moment because she's clearly the most desirable angelic celestial creature on the planet. She is their queen and nothing could make her more desirable. And she is described by poets and courtiers as being lovely. And even as her rather dispassionate kind of critics go, well, she's in pretty damn good shape for an old broad, mm. basically as their kind of grudging acknowledgement of her. Because her face may have aged, but her body and her energy level and her wit had not. And... I'm sure a lot of that was due to good environment, plenty of money, all the right food, everything else. Uh, she also just had some really good genetics, apparently, and was very bright. Even, even onto her deathbed, she never really became senile or anything like that. That was very sexy <laughs> in any kind of not, human Not being senile. <laughs> Not syphilitic, senile, uh, you know, uh, any of these. Yeah, exactly, these were, exactly. These were turnoffs of the time. <laughs> exactly, all, all of that. And so uh, I know this is, this is a theme that I, I kind of wanted to introduce here, in part because this is going to come up later when we're looking at Malvolio, as we're about to pretty intensely um, in, a, in a couple of scenes. All that aside, so here Olivia is not interested in someone. She's not interested in Malvolio. She's not interested in Aggie Cheek. She's not interested in Orsino. She's not interested in any of these old men or potentially older men. She's interested in this young eunuch. And Curl of his lip. It's... It's kind of a, it's a, a hack. It's a workaround. So here is somebody who does not have a penis. And so all that blood. Oh. Well, don't leave it there. <laughs> Terrifying. Of somebody who has a penis, and so all of that blood um, being used by their brain. And but we their think heart. we think that Cesario has a penis as Olivia, right? I mean, as Olivia, we're imagining Cesario uh, penis. No, no, you, we're you think not. we're not? We are I, I would say no, that she that... knows. No, she knows that Cesario is a eunuch. Okay, okay, gotcha, gotcha, eunuch. Okay, as opposed to, okay, gotcha, gotcha. I thought eunuchs had their testicles yeah. moved, not their yeah. penises. All right, all right, well, yes. So they're Technically, still capable of the act. Yes, but that's not the point. <laughs> I'm just saying. I, I agree. You're, you are right. You are technically correct. Um, and uh, it's the best kind of correct. All that said... <laughs> um, it was understood that a eunuch, that they were not diverting 
important blood to their penis because they didn't have their testicles. And Cesario's gift of, you know, the verse and the wooing and everything. And it's the clearly verse. like clearly this is an inner life and an intellect and that kind of thing that mm-hmm. she's attracted to. But I do like your point about these old men you know, and how old is Olivia, right? Yeah, middle age, who knows? Young. We don't we, we don't we don't know. We don't but know. But not not Toby know. and Aggie Aggie Cheeks age probably not quite Viola. She was a fabulous forty six last time. <laughs> I <saw> nice. <laughs> yeah. So say that. So you know, I could see a forty six and uh, getting you know, seeing the right twenty four year old uh, youngster pop across the vision and uh Having looked at Malvolio and Toby for the last freaking fifteen years, uh, you know. <laughs> yes, her 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 uh, si- sample is definitely skewed. <laughs> <laughs> it is a tad skewed. All that said, in normal times, Olivia would have gotten married in her early twenties at the latest, just because she was a noble. If she had been a working class or a farmer, then she might not have gotten married until she was 26 or 27. Um, 30 was definitely... It's done. You might as well not even... Yeah. You might as well not even. Um, And partly because of that belief that sex was for young people, that having babies was for young people. And certainly uh, there's no question that uh, mortality rates for mothers and babies are better before 30. That's just just the facts, ma'am. So... um, if we're going to be like horrifyingly prescriptivist here, then Olivia is probably no more than 24. But we don't have to be prescriptivist, thank goodness. Certainly Shakespeare wasn't, and uh, we shouldn't be either. <laughs> so we get to the end of this uh, very painful scene from the character's perspective. And there's almost, there's this scene... Let's see, if you would read Olivia, Bridget, and then John, you can read Viola, where Olivia starts with, Stay, I prithee, tell me what thou thinkest of me. Sure. Stay, I prithee, tell me what thou thinkest of me. You do think you are not what you are. (laughs) If I think so, I think the same of you. To think you're right. I am not what I am. I would you were as I would have you be. Would it be better, madam, than I am? I wish it might, for now I am your fool. (laughs) There's a very, like, who's on first Mm. quality Mm -hmm. to this, where they're talking past each other. They're, but they're both being completely sincere. She's being a little obtuse, though, again, with the viola here. You know what I mean? Like, you could throw, like, just a slightly more clarifying bone out there. Just, or not, or lack of, you know. If she right. Had one to throw, I, uh, right? But I'm tish. <laughs> okay, but we can't leave it there because Olivia gets the greatest. I mean, this is uh, two of the greatest passages in the entire play. Olivia's, you know, thunderclap of love here. Go ahead, go ahead, Bridget. (laughs) Oh, what a deal of scorn looks beautiful in the contempt and anger of his lip. A murderous guilt shows not itself more soon than love that would seem hid. Love's night is noon. Cesario. By the roses of the spring, by maidhood, honor, truth, and everything. I love thee so that 
maugre all thy pride, nor wit nor reason can my passion hide. Do not extort thy reasons from this clause, for that I woo thou therefore hast no cause, but rather reason thus with reasoned fetter. Love sought is good, but given unsought is better. Loverly. <laughs> And then oh, and go ahead and give uh, us. No, you got to do it. I, that's that's a that's for a woman to say. No, no I want you to. <laughs> no, say it's, I would not that's dare. That's what a man said. Not... That's what a man no, kn- said when Shakespeare no, wrote it. I, no, ahead, I would John. never. It's the only chance you'll ever, ever get. You, you, Rachel, it's you never get to do you'll... any of them. You, Rachel, I'm not. That's an all right. Actor. Go ahead and give it to us. This is the greatest, <laughs> one of the greatest things Viola gets to say. Anyone can say it. You can do it. Then you can do it. Okay, okay, but let's let's have you this time. All right, all right, I'm diving in. (laughs) You're a hairy viola. (laughs) By innocence, I swear, and by my youth, I have one heart, one bosom, and one truth, and that no woman has, nor never none shall be mistress of it, save I alone. And so adieu, good madam. Never more will I my master's tears to you deplore. <laughs> Yet come again, for thou perhaps mayst move that heart which now abhors to like his love. <laughs> uh, that's so, that's just so desperate, the poor thing right there, you know? Oh, maybe it'll work next time. May, you know, you might convince me next time. Come back. Uh, <laughs> come back. Poor sweet yes. thing there. She's just all. Uh, you read that beautifully. No, John. no, 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 no. You guys, Much you guys. Better than I ever could have. No, it's not. <laughs> just remember, like the the reason that these words resound down through the centuries is because we all feel them. It does not take a woman to understand these feelings. Oh, I, yeah, I just, uh, 100%. I just love, there's just something about with so many wonderful speeches that we all, you know, all, all of us males from barely speaking at 12 years old, you know, as our first, you know, fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream to getting into our Romeos and into our house and into our, and, and it's a lifetime of amazing speeches ending with Lear, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. and Viola is just a, a such a right and, and righteous uh, uh, speaker, and in this moment in particular, just such an amazing, you know, mm-hmm. by my innocence I swear, and by my youth, and you know, and that no woman has nor never, sh- you know, it's just, it's just, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's Brutus, or it's it's just proclaiming, and it's it's just such well, a wonderful line in the sand. That's something I actually think about a lot as a middle-aged woman who does Shakespeare is that, you know, those, and just thinking about sort of the mechanics of of his troupe. Viola and Rosalind are the two, you know, considered the two greatest female roles <clears throat> because they can be played by boys as boys for the majority of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so he can give them these fabulous long speeches that the women don't normally get um, until we get, out into Croneland when Richard you know, and yeah and yeah, all of that yeah you know like a perimenopausal woman sounds just like a sixty year old man so what the yeah. hell <laughs> <That's> um, <true. laughs> throw some saggy birdseed boobs on there and you're good to go um, leave leave the five o'clock shadow it works <laughs> um, <laughs> so you know so that's one of the things that I think about because when we do these these um, productions and and 
especially when we're doing these original practices productions where the actors are completely responsible for learning their own lines. And I'll be sitting there like I, the year that we did Midsummer, and Titania's got two big chunks and then she's got done. And the poor guy who was playing Oberon was just like, <laughs> like, like on yeah. my, on on. my stack of note cards was an inch. Yeah. Deck. His was three. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of it to me is, is the fact that these are roles that, the boys didn't have to hide the fact that they were boys for half the play. So mm-hmm. you could give them more stage time because the illusion of there's only so long you can look at a, a 16 year old boy in a dress. Totally. Part of your brain is going, that's a 16 year old boy. Well, in a dress. And yeah. Any block, any block that you have, whether right. it can have right. any, any emotional value or not, anything like that, but anything that impedes right. our interaction into the story is, right. yeah. Right. Totally. Um, yeah. So I think one of the reasons these are so meaty is because there was the opportunity to be able to sit in that gender queerness, even though the term and the concept didn't exist. But because right. it was right. this this more nebulous space, gender space, that he was allowed to, to sit in those characters in a way that he couldn't yeah. necessarily in in some of the other, in, in most of the middle-aged women, for example, and in even some of the younger women who are supposed to be women. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's all true. And this is one of his later plays. In, in reading Tina Packer's Women of Will, she makes a convincing case that Shakespeare's female roles get better yeah. and more complex yeah. as Shakespeare yeah. himself matures and seems to understand women better. Yes. <laughs> Across the board, man. Males, yeah. too. Comedy of errors, anyone? I mean, that was just like, yeah. Exactly. It's mm-hmm. a little painful mm-hmm. in some ways. This almost gets pushed to the point of ridiculousness, I feel like, in Winner's Tale, which is a play that I, I am not fond of for a number of reasons. It's a very misunderstood like it, play, it hits... I think, too, but that's another... Yeah, sorry. Well, it's easy to misunderstand. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I feel like Shakespeare hits such a, a pleasing balance in this particular play in terms of the situation is preposterous and yet the things that the characters are saying Mm -hmm. are not Mm -hmm. preposterous. Mm -hmm. They all make sense within their own Mm -hmm. world. We rarely think to ourselves now, why did that character just say something like Mm -hmm. that that can take us out of... You know, and I want to, if I can add to, you know, when I said the woman should speak that, um, mm-hmm. I, I think I need to pull back a bit from that in, in, in terms of the, just, uh, you know, the, I saw that Rylance version of, of the mm-hmm. show, and I think it was all male cast, all male cast, yes, and that Viola, cast, that was yeah. exactly, I mean, that was just fantastic, mm-hmm. and so I think it speaks to what you're saying, Bridget, with your, with that, the idea of inhabiting that space of that, um, Mm-hmm. Of that life of violence, whoever can do it, whoever you know, whatever it is, whoever can do it, whoever's actor enough to do it, because um, that guy was amazing. His violence, he was, and I wish I had his name, but his violence, Cesario, was, was the way that it was the songbird cry that came from his mouth on mm-hmm. on that, you know, none shall be the master of my, you know, and all this, and mm-hmm. yeah, it was it, very well done. I I think I what I meant to say as opposed to a woman. Uh, should read it is that uh i eat a lot of sandwiches and uh you know i'm a big old uh beast of a dude and so it's just never it's never rolled off the tongue for me but <laughs> I, I like making you do right the job. right we'll just swap it out i'm gonna i'm gonna be titania next time 
Bridget, you're you're Oberon. I'll be Titania. We're gonna get this done. <laughs> well, I love I love gender switching up productions, and I'm sorely tempted to do that, especially with Midsummer Night's Dream. It's te- very tempting to do with Twelfth Night, just because. Uh, but I think it's the kind of thing that's more interesting to the people doing the performing than the people hundred percent watching. I completely agree. That's the peril there. Ultimately, end of the so day, I think it's, that would it's be, we're actors. Be yeah. like a fun Zoom read <laughs> where you switched up the genders on everybody, and everybody goes, "Wow, I really learned a lot." Mm-hmm. Unless, like that Mark Rylance thing again. That, that those original practices of of the that all male mm-hmm. thing. It was such. I mean, Rylance was a god, is Olivia. He was a god. And but Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry's Malvolio was amazing. Absolutely fantastic. amazing. But also as a museum piece to see like, oh, he wrote this for a dude mm-hmm. that, you know, and that's the other thing with these lines with, with Cesario is that Shakespeare, you know, that second half of the sonnets, Shakespeare, understood, there was something in there about what was going on with Cesario and Viola and the, and the guys and Olivia and back and forth and not being able, you know, and Olivia's passion about not being heard, but not being able to speak all the way through so that the loved one understands and or seen these blocks tied in with gender and things that can never touch and all that. It's all right. You know, we know Shakespeare kind of lived there with that, that whole second half of the sonnet thing. He had some personal stake in that. I, who knows the exacts, but. Um, well, and I'm learning from the more research I do, it was pretty much assumed that adult males would be attracted to women and young males. That was just kind of a given. The, it, it echoes, the it echoes um, Olivia's hitting the brick wall with, with uh, Cesario, echoes some of those, uh, you know, sonnets to the young lads that, uh, mm. where he's like, you can't, you'll never, you'll, I, I'll never be the thing. You'll never understand. I'll, you know, mm-hmm. it's just kind of classic, um, you know, whether it's one of you's gay, one of you's not, or one, you know, who knows, however, you know, whatever it was. Well, but, if you know. he was normal for the time, then it would have been assumed that he was attracted to attractive young males and i'm sure he was surrounded it certainly by seems them. like he, he was uh, moved to to write something very passionate about them well and it sold well yeah, right fact- <laughs> we don't have any interviews yeah <laughs> it's just like yeah, i can knock this I out mean, for any old thing <laughs> exactly like whether his personal life aside that there was nothing in this that your average elizabethan found unpalatable Mm -hmm. or unlikely or unreasonable. He was known much more for his erotic poetry even than he was for his plays. He was famous for his erotic poetry before he ever produced his first play. So this kind of love that he's describing, it's it's part of the culture. It's part of ancient Greek culture. And we know the Elizabethans really – idolized ancient Greek culture in a lot of ways. You can see why they did. They were both seafaring nations that relied a lot on wool. They had a lot in common. And there are the ancient Greek myths of Aphrodite falling in love with Adonis, who basically cut off his own penis to get away from her. There's uh, the god Zeus, who falls in love with the young male cupbearer, Ganymede, and Hera gets very jealous. These kinds of love triangles between a definitely gendered man and a definitely gendered female, and 
an attractive, nebulously gendered young person comes up over and over again in the mythology and in other early modern works, all different kinds of works. Um, we see it again, obviously, in Shakespeare's plays. We've got Oberon, Titania, and Puck. <laughs> um, it was sort of normal, like a, a man about town would be seen with an attractive woman and an attractive young man on the other arm. And the question was not, was he doing them both? The question was, was he attending to his civic and familial and duty to God while still having both? And it was the excess. It was the spending too much time chasing a young man's thighs that were cause for censorship, for cries of sodomy, all of that. It, it wasn't a matter of a particular act. There wasn't like a line drawn in the sand where it says, oh, you know, if you're having a sexual relationship with a young man, that means that you're a sodomist and a bugger. It, it wasn't that clear cut. It was more that if that's all you're doing, and you're not producing heirs, and you're not attending to the affairs of your estates and so on, and you're not going off to war when the king wants you to, or at least sending him some damn money, then um, then society has no need for you. And we live in such a prudish time. <laughs> we do. It's really, really hard for us to get into that mindset that the Elizabethans had that sex for fun i don't know it seems like the expected. kids got a grip on it i don't know this whole this new generation of the instagrams thank goodness <laughs> thank good and i could not be happier about that and the fact that all these all the people who have ever broken through barriers of one thing or another broken through stereotypes over the years we owe them a tremendous debt as producers of shakespeare because those people and their sacrifices have made it easier for us to put on these plays the way that they were meant to be put on. <laughs> so I think we'll stop there for this scene. Boom. Um, unless uh, either of you have anything else? Uh, no, that sounds like here? a great button. That was a good button, man. Okay. All right. <laughs>